0: But I would wake up, I would do a line of coke, I would get in the shower, I would shower as fast as I possibly could, I would get out, I would do more, I would do it right when I got to work, and then I would do it all day. From sunup to sundown, I would do it all day long. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Stigmatized. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different and I'm switching seats and I've had a lot of people ask me uh, that they want to hear my story so everybody can get uh, a chance to know me as the host of the show and find out my journey and what I went through and uh, why I started this podcast so I've brought my good friend Erin in and she's going to be interviewing me today, so something uh, kind of off the cuff. But I felt like it was time to do this, so I'm really excited about it.
1: Thanks for having me, Trevor. And just as a precursor, I'm unqualified to be an interviewer, but Trevor knows I talk a lot and I'm nosy and I don't oh, have she's much very filter. Inqui-
0: very inquisitive <laughs> and ask good questions <laughs> and curious. So no, that I wouldn't have anybody else do it. So this is great.
1: Um. So I thought we could start. Talking about your childhood and how you know you grew up. I know we grew up in the same town, but I did not know you back then. So,
0: well, um, yeah, life was good. I mean, I grew up. I would say, in some ways, I hit the lottery. Um, kind of a Brady Bunch type scenario. I mean, I have a an older sister and an older brother, and. Parents that showed us nothing but love and affection and, you know, no sort of um, like neglect or or any sort of negative experience in our house whatsoever. So it was it was happy. I was a happy kid. And um,
1: did you have the church? Family vacation. Well, we were
0: we were the uh, <laughs> Easter, Christmas type, you know, yeah. tour. You know, not many. We sang in the choir and did stuff like that, but no, not overly religious. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty normal, but it was uh, yeah, got to do cool stuff. And uh, you know, I had two older siblings, so they kind of beat me down, and they were older enough to where like I wouldn't too connected with them. So I was kind of fended for myself a little bit, yeah. which um, I was always jealous of them because they got to do stuff I couldn't do. But no, all in all, it was, it was great, really.
1: Didn't yeah. want for anything? No, and, not, no, yeah. no, not
0: at all. And, and honestly, the opposite of that. I mean, I think <laughs> we, we were probably given too much and coddled too much, which in, in hindsight of the way my life has gone, I think that had a uh, negative effect in some ways of, of work ethic and and things like that, but no, did not want for anything. it was um, it was great,
1: so obviously, you're doing this podcast, which I love and I listen all the time, um, about addiction, mental health. And so just wondering now, like you said, like in hindsight, when did that really start to show the mental you know side of it feeling different or feeling something's missing for you?
0: Well, I always say this, and and for a lot of people in recovery or active addiction or uh, any sort of struggle, uh, some people have traumatic experiences. So I fell down a flight of wooden stairs when I was 18 months old, fractured my skull. So I say from the beginning, I was up against it. I mean, my, my brain development was just rattled instantly, pretty much. And Do you
1: remember that at 18? No, months, no, you no, no. Told, I just, okay. in,
0: in hindsight, and um, <laughs> because er, early on in my life, I, you know, when I could start, you know, recalling things and remembering stuff, I was just, there was something off. And and as I grew up, I had more concussions, and just this unfortunate thing of being a boy. I didn't have any headgear. It was just falling on my head, falling off of jungle gyms and we had a barn in our backyard, and I fell off of that. You I mean we're talking like right onto the pavement, like legitimate you know <laughs> trauma to my brain yeah. and i I firmly believe that there's brain damage involved so this and again, people can argue whether trauma plays a difference, but for me, I believe it did. There could also you know also be some genetic stuff, but a winded answer to your question is. Five, six, seven. I mean, I just I was off. There was something there was something off with me. I mean, I was happy, it's fun, but I was always over the top. I was always extremely worried about what was gonna happen.
1: Like the unknown? Yes. Like yeah. Like
0: so profound so such profound feelings that it was just I would look at my classmates next to me and think, There's not a chance they're thinking about the shit that I'm thinking about. <laughs> you know, just yeah. You know, stressing myself out, and but still f- pushing through as a happy kid.
1: Were you getting in trouble in school for being kind of hyper or like yeah. too much? Yes, for the teachers.
0: Not, I didn't act out. I was not a discipline issue, but I was. I my dad called me a fart in a frying pan. I just couldn't sit still. Yeah. Total spaz. Like, like style it down over the top all the time. Yeah. yeah, and part of that was just my makeup, and part of it was my yearning for acceptance, and you know because confusion and wondering why I was, uh, those questions came pretty much from the start Mm -hmm. and they kind of just, you know, it just snowballed slowly through, throughout. So. And
1: then what about the alcohol, like drug side? I mean, when did you start to feel, I'm sure you didn't know it at the time, but like that first exposure
0: to my alcohol and drugs started as a kid, in in a, in a different way, in a different way, like <laughs> video games, you know, hanging out with friends, spending the night somewhere, uh, playing sports. I mean, like nothing was ever enough for me. It was again such a almost out of body experience where I would almost before it would happen, I would go to mm. my friend's house and I'm like, okay, I can I wonder if we can stay up like until two? When is this like? you know, can I stay two nights or can, are we going to play a double header? Or I wonder if we can play, you know, it's just like always yearning for more even before it started. So I had the addictive behavior very early on in my life. But to get to the drug and alcohol part of it, I saw my siblings you know drink when I was pretty young they were older than me but uh, mainly my brother my sister you know she professes herself as an angel but um <laughs> uh, so I would say I saw it at like twelve thirteen
1: what about the parent your parents were they they social? drank
0: oh yeah yeah um but I mean nothing that I thought was over the top but mm-hmm. their crowd yeah they went out every weekend and you know they were uh,
1: they had a good time. They had a good time
0: for sure, no <laughs> yeah. doubt about it. And I think I drank a Weedman beer, which is a Cincinnati just roughneck brew, <laughs> when I was probably eleven because I just just yeah. wondered, and it yeah. was so awful. But that was just a one off, and I would drink my dad's Jack Daniels on accident and shit like that. But um, so fifteen, I I went to a dance with a girlfriend who was two years older than me. And I'm this – I'm an impressionable little kid, you know, a little preppy, just, yeah, very impressionable, gullible little kid. Anyway
1: – So you're two, 15 and she's 17.
0: Sorry. So 14 and 16. Eighth grade, 10th grade. So yeah. I go to this homecoming dance. I'm like stud muffin, you know, yeah. going with this older girl, but <laughs> have no clue what I'm getting into. And we stop in this parking lot of this mall because we got there earlier or whatever. They start smoking a joint. And I had never – I would seen marijuana, but I'd never like smelled it or seen it like in action, mm-hmm. you know, and I smashed my face up against the window, like with my thumb in my mouth, like what is going on? These people, I mean, these, this is not, what are they doing? Like they're, we're all going to die, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I shied away from it then, was scared of it. And then I, I forget the first time I tried it. But so you
1: didn't try it then? No. Even though you were with an no. older girl and the older crowd? No.
0: Hmm. Scared to death. Yeah. And then I saw a couple more times while I was dating her and didn't do it. And I don't know when the first time was. I forget. But, you know, it takes a couple times to really, like, kick in. So the first time I'm like, you know, probably was like, you know, what the hell is this? And so I think I, sh- I don't know, I drank and smoked pot pretty close together for the first time. And when they both worked... The uptight me said okay there's there's something to this stuff, and I'm able to
1: were you doing it in the crowds of the people you know your friends oh yeah,
0: the other yeah, the other one's doing it um but yeah it it worked, and I was able to like chill and mellow out and kind of get away from all the stuff that was because i was I was inside this hyper overactive Chris Farley type entertainer was a scared little kid. I'm still wondering, like, why was I such a weirdo, mm-hmm. you know, under underneath the, at all? Um, so it and allowed you me people to were thinking that about oh, you because you were thinking about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first that was the first time. So I very quickly I didn't drink all the time, you know, on the weekends. Um, but I very I, I had a love, quick love of marijuana pretty quickly.
1: But that was your way of being in that crowd. It sound like if you're just doing it on the weekends, then you're kind of living with you know yourself during the week and then to fit in not doing it because they're doing it, but because you feel better about yourself like i'm I'm good now, I'm cool now, yeah, yeah and, yeah and
0: so that mental that helped me with my mental insecurities, but it was also fun, like you know, my first time of like breaking the rules, yeah, you know, so as much as I was a scared little kid that. To the letter, like, didn't break the rules. Mm-hmm. Now I had this hard shift of, okay, I'm smoking marijuana. This is awesome. Let's keep, like,
1: and nothing bad it's happened.
0: Nothing, that's right. So mm-hmm. we're going to keep, we're going to keep moving forward. This with recipe this. So works. It, it slowly <laughs> started progressing to where, and the crowd changed for sure. I still had my same buddies who I played soccer with and everything, but I was kind of the guy, I was friends with all the crowds. Like, I was, you know, we just, everybody. Hung out and I was open to new experiences, but I started gravitating towards the people that smoke weed all the time. Yeah. And that became me pretty quickly. So by sophomore, junior year, by junior year of high school, I was smoking weed probably at least a couple, three or four times a week. And by the time I was a senior, I'd get high before school almost every day. Wow. And then I'd smoke weed from three o'clock to six o'clock, drive around and just get stoned. And somehow my, you know, I started smoking cigarettes and, you know, just became, you know, this rowdy little dude. And somehow my parents.
1: I was going to say, did your parents? Do you think I mean, I do? smoked
0: cigarettes and then I threw on, you know, like a <laughs> bottle of Cody Musk or something like before I went home for dinner and they didn't say anything. So.
1: So you think they knew about any of it or. Well,
0: they were not. And my dad even said, you know, he caught me a couple of times, but he's he never got into With drugs. the cigarettes
1: or the weed? <laughs> Either, you know,
0: because I yeah. would come home stoned and yeah. they just never, maybe they thought baby little Trevor would never do anything like that, but they, uh no, they never, it was never, I was never busted for any reason. Like
1: a big, yeah. I feel like some people think of it as like a rite of passage. Oh, everyone's going to try it. It's just weed. And then, you know. But
0: little did they know. I mean, I'm like, I, and it, it just yeah. like my personality. I went from zero to a thousand, you know, I smoking a joint here and there like what's the point of that let's right. blaze you know that was that's, <laughs> and that's how it you know and I forced myself into a situation where I could I could do that yeah. I, I connected myself with the right people and and
1: know. then were you that guy to all the friends like if everyone was looking to have a good time and go hard and and get in that's have
0: a good what time. It, that's what it became and that's I was the same way when I was little like I, I was the center of all of it and I wanted everybody even the day I stopped using drugs wanted everybody to have as much fun as I was having like let's experience every sort of emotion like today yeah (laughs) and what we're doing at this party or whatever so yeah I became the guy that the
1: life of the party yeah and everybody everybody could hide behind
0: me because nobody was going to be as stupid and dumb as me so they (laughs) could you know I was always the guy you know
1: Hmm. um and so in hindsight do you think that you could pinpoint anywhere where you felt like this is. Did you ever feel out of control, like, like a little, you know, like, oh, this isn't good?
0: I remember one time in college. I remember the day where I was, and, and it's a, another gullible thing, but I was sitting on the fire escape in the back of our fraternity house. And I'm smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and getting stoned. I mean, it was a daily thing. And I'm like, I wonder if this is like hurting me. Like, my body. Like, I wonder if this is just going to have repercussions, like the fear of the unknown, thinking these random things. I wonder if this is going to, like, hurt me down the road because, like, I'm getting after it pretty good. But I never thought of it. I thought I was just a pothead and having fun because at that point in my life, everybody was binging. Yeah. That's the age where you binge. But probably, I was probably binging more than them. Like, I was, and maybe not consumption, but mentally, I think I've been an alcoholic and an addict, like I said, ever since I was forever. The but, mentality what, yeah, of it. Nothing yeah. is ever enough for me. Let's push it to the very limit and see if we can, see if it can not ever end. Like, that would, that's the goal. If we can just, like, keep it trucking, <laughs> like, forever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. So when if you never thought was it a problem, obviously, at some point you thought it was a problem because not that it's funny, but eventually you did go seek treatment. So it must have gotten out of control where you had some realization, or did you have to have somebody tell you,
0: well, that was it's a problem, yeah. so throughout you know throughout the years, uh, the the partying stayed, you know, it never became, you know, I would buy pot. Yeah, but I mean, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't... It wasn't out of control to where I was smoking before bed or anything like that. You know what I mean? But it it stayed steady to where, you know, when I tried cocaine the first time when I was 18. But I tried everything. I, I did. I tried everything. And those things were short-lived. But it continued where alcohol, marijuana, anytime anybody had cocaine, I would do it. But I wouldn't buy it, you mm-hmm. know, because people had it. And that's where I was still this scared little kid. Like, I can't buy drugs, but I'll sure fucking do them, you know. Yeah um so then i get into my work life or whatever bottom line even after kids and everything i i i did it i mean it didn't matter and a lot of that was stress of my my life and what was going on and being unhappy but still being this kid that nothing's ever enough let's party so so when it became a problem it was february 2014 I had a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and we just had a baby in November, so like five months, four months. And I thought it might be a good idea to go out and (laughs) see a friend, and we were getting drunk and having steak at a nice restaurant, and I inquire if he can, like, does he still party? It's like, yeah, I think I got some weed at my house. I'm like, no. Like, can you get any Coke or anything like that? he said, maybe. So he did. (laughs) And we we did it, and it fulfilled a purpose. But there was no more after that, so I just went about my, you know, life and just continued. But I was there. I was at this out with my friends the next weekend. And I thought that for a fraction of a second, huh? Wonder if we could get it again next Saturday? Hmm. I wonder if he can get it again. And he kept coming through. But it was starting to take long because I was going through this like intermediary. Finally, he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Here's this dude's number. <laughs> but he was a middleman and this guy was taking forever to get it. So finally, I inquired about getting the the source's number. Very quickly did. Because
1: you can't get it fast enough from the... Window. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Absolutely not. So I've met this person for the first time and uh, he was unprepared what because i I think i stressed him out that i needed to meet him right away that he didn't have anything prepared so he ripped out this ziploc bag of cocaine that i've never seen anything like it i mean we're talking like boulders it was a gallon ziploc bag completely full with bricks of cocaine and i said to myself huh that uh this could be a problem this could be a problem and so <laughs> he gives me what i need it starts out with little bits but he told me that day he's like i I rarely go out of town. I'm up all day. I will never not have this for you if this is like what you dig. It's good right customer he, service right there. Right, right what he told me that. <laughs> I'm like, this is, it's probably done now because.
1: In comparison, how much had you ever seen? Like, I don't have any exposure to cocaine. So, like, what's.
0: I saw, you know, I would see little bag- baggies that people would buy, but this was like.
1: Times a, a thousand.
0: Uh, 10,000. I mean, I'm just, yeah. Crazy like TV show amount of cocaine that I saw. Never saw that amount again, but I saw it that time. Mm -hmm. So buying a little bit once a week, then I bought it twice a week, and then I bought it, you know, bigger bags. And he's like, well, you can, you're buying all this and spending this money. Why don't you move up to this quantity and you save 30 bucks? I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Fine. And so it just started snowballing into, I'm doing it a lot And then at the end, you know, so that's, so for the first year I start, it starts progressing. I'm having, you know, quote unquote fun. I'm running, I'm gunning, I'm staying out all the time. I'm coming home for dinner and I'm there physically for the kids and my wife, but not, you know, I'm not like emotionally there, you know. Because um, are you going out later after dinner? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm making excuses for every you know, alarms, You're just checking the box. The alarm's going off yeah. down at work or I got a, you know, guy, he's got a flat tire or whatever. Um, and then it just progressively got worse to where in the last six months it was no longer becoming fun. That is the point where I was in my house with a friend and he looked at me. He's like, you good? Like, is this like getting out of control I'm like, no, man, this is fine. And he left in that moment. I'm like, does it like, am I like.
1: Because he was probably having fun and he looked at you. But but I think
0: he was scared for me because it was, it was not normal. Is this the same friend,
1: the steakhouse friend?
0: No, different. different, different. No. Um, And then I'm like, am I good? Because I was doing it from the only time I would sleep was from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. And that's when my. Two girls would come down and try to watch cartoons with me, but I couldn't wake up. And they're like slapping my, touching my face with the control, the remote control and just a total waste of space. But I would wake up. I would do a line of coke. I would get in the shower. I would shower as fast as I possibly could. I would get out. I would do more. And then I would do it right when I got to work. And then I would do it all day. From sun up to sundown, I would do it all day long.
1: And was that a feeling of higher at that point was that just like to you that was like you needed to be at that place to function
0: It wasn't like I needed it's not like an opiate where I needed it to like be well yeah. and like not sick. I just couldn't stop like it was such a
1: but you like the way that felt right there and you were not just at trying,
0: the end no not at the end it it, it was just I just <laughs> couldn't I was doing amounts to where you know people say, Because I would hang out. I'd always did it by myself, but every once in a while I would go out with somebody else that did it, you know, who were connoisseurs. And they're like, you know, you can only get so high because I'm I'm doing just these Scarface – I don't know if anybody's seen the movie (laughs) – amounts of cocaine just ridiculous to where, you know, I would – yeah, it was just ridiculous. So last six months, I realized that it was an issue.
1: I want to know, do you – did your wife, sister – Anybody in your life? Were they privy to it? Were they kind of turning a blind eye? Were you hiding it really? No well? idea.
0: You have no, no idea. idea. My wife knew something was up, but you know, she was it, I was sleeping. I was sleeping in the basement, <laughs> yeah. uh, adding no value to our life, and just kind of ships in the night type of thing. And I was just a nocturnal animal, so she knew something was up. But I mean, I was on a different. Planet at that point, doing whatever and she's I she's staying at home. She's yeah. not working outside the mm-hmm. home.
1: She's at home dealing with three very small children. Absolutely. So her Hyper capacity to yes, yes. To,
0: to think about anything else was you know, and I was just you know, air quotes stressed out and <laughs> and I don't know if we were going to get into like job or or whatever, but um, so the last last six months they. A couple of friends and my sister did become privy to my antics because I was probably, my hiding was probably blatantly just because I was out. I was going into psychosis at that point. Like Mm -hmm. I was out of my mind. Like I would bear crawl around my house at night thinking like there were helicopters and shit. Like I was like crazy.
1: Yeah. And we can go back and talk about your work, life, everything. But like at that time you were in business with your sister. So you're probably having to meet with her talk oh, yeah. about things. So she's known you your whole life. I'm sure at some point she's like, mm.
0: and I would keep it together <laughs> enough to know that I have a big meeting that I'm going to like shelf it for a couple hours, you know, like right. I wouldn't, you know, but, but even at the <laughs> end of it, it got pretty bad where I couldn't even do that. But anyway, they, two friends and my sister intervened in like August of 15. We, they had been seeing a therapist. We went and saw, uh, they've been trying to figure out how to do this intervention with me because everybody saw it like I was a train wreck at this point.
1: On the side, they're like, we got to figure this out. How do we approach this? Okay.
0: So these two friends saw it. Then they told my sister. And then these two guys approached me, sat me down and said, okay, we know what's going on. We got to get you help. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually happened the first time I got intervened by my friend, he literally had to like throw me up against a locker because at this particular golf event, I flipped out. And like, what's going crazy and breaking things in front of like a lot of people. And uh, so he had to throw me up against the locker and say, you know, I know what's going on. And I broke down. And because I was tired at that point, because you know, it's a, an exhausting existence. There's a lot of things you got to keep up with. And right. who are you lying to today? And, you know, can I get enough drugs? And uh, what, who am I going to pawn off of each other and use and abuse and, and whatever? But uh, so. They sat me down said, okay, your sister knows, which I shit my pants because she's my business partner, family business. We got, you know, 35 people that were responsible for, like it's now real. And so they had been seeing this therapist. We go see the therapist together. I put up no fight because I was done. Like I didn't want to do this anymore. I was in a living hell. Um. Uh, So I talked them into not going anywhere because my family wasn't, we never experienced anything like this. We didn't know what rehab was. So I just decided that I was going to see this therapist twice a week and that was going to appease everybody. And I don't know if in the back of my mind, I knew that I could somehow manipulate that situation. But this cat was old and he started asking me questions that he had just asked me the last session, like we had never met. And I said to myself, well, it'd be pretty easy to like lie to this dude. So I relapsed, started doing coke. I would go in there twice a week, man. I feel amazing. Like this sobriety thing is like awesome. I'd be high as a kite. So six weeks, that lasted, for, that relapse lasted for six weeks. And I'm going right to the core of this thing, if, if, if that's okay. But um, I'm sitting, it was October, like, I don't know first week in October, I'm sitting in my basement, which is where I did all my drugs. I my little setup and uh, it was like my little lab, <laughs> but I'm looking in the mirror and my eyes are as jaundice as you could get. I mean, they were yellow and I know that my organs are given out, you know, I mean, my body's gurgling, you know, just it, it's bad. I'm in pain. Uh, I'm about to have a heart attack because I'm doing just copious amounts of cocaine to where you couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't stop to where I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack at some point, And I would have, and I was crying and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm asking God, I'm asking my dad, you know, help me like who, like, if this ends, how could it possibly be in a good way? And the next day I'm sitting in my office and I get this phone call from a number that I don't recognize, which 99.999 times I would not answer it.
1: And they're calling you on your desk phone?
0: No, you can't no. Work? Cell phone. Oh, your cell phone, but you're at work. But like okay. I didn't answer the phone for my mother or any of my friends. Like I was known, you know, in the whole network for not answering my phone. So I pick up the phone and it's, you know, John Doe from the DEA. And so I fell to my knees white as a sheet, scariest moment of my life. And I'm like, the fucking DEA, you're going to be shitting me. And so I said, well, what are you calling me for? <laughs> and the guy's like, well, Mr. Steinhauser, we don't just go through the phone book and call people like, you know, we need to talk to you anyway. They had arrested the purse, the source. And turns out there was surveillance involved, which made me on surveillance. We're talking mm-hmm. like video surveillance. And, uh, yeah, so I went home and I called my wife. I called my sister. I called that therapist. I told <laughs> everybody I'd been lying to him. I told my wife that i had been a raging cocaine addict for the last eighteen months, and this is what's going on. Did
1: she know you were going to therapy for it?
0: Mm-mm. No, they. Well, my sister. No, they kept it from her. Like we were going to try and put a tourniquet on this thing, you know. And so after the yeah, so and I knew, so I, I got that phone call. I don't know if I told him then or what. So anyway, I went on a five-day business trip to Denver, like the next day I got that phone call. And somehow they let me go and they said you gotta come home the day you get when you get back, I said Tuesday. They said we need it to you Tuesday. Should never have gone. I was a basket case the whole time. But I had my last drink in Colorado Springs, got home on Sunday, and I don't know why I told him Tuesday, because I guess I wanted a day of like cush to think about what I was gonna do. But I was just <laughs> out of my mind. So I called him Monday and I said, I got home early. Can I come down there right now? And so I went down to this building downtown. Did you feel
1: like I better go because I have the courage to go now?
0: Yes. And (laughs) I just, I knew I was going to go, but, you know, so I sat in the parking lot of this garage and I said, okay, I got three choices. I can back up out of here, act like nothing's going on, act like they never called and just continue the march. But I've got no more, I've got no more drugs because I only bought it from one person uh, Mm -hmm. the whole time. But so that's, out i could lie and just act a fool and act like you know whatever just lie for whoever um, to get out of it or i could tell the truth and so i decided to go and tell the truth and and yeah and so i broke down in this meeting these guys are hammering me i sit down at this conference room table huge conference room table nothing like i've ever seen something out of a movie and i sit on one side and six federal agents sit across the table for me And I am shitting, literally trying to keep it all together, shit in my pants. And these guys started laying into me and I just broke down after like 10 minutes. I said, guys, I'm, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father and a business owner. And I just have a raging drug problem because I think they were trying to see, you know, I had a big SUV at the time and they're watching us all. So I think they were, they thought I might be helping them, you know, push it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that they, I think they saw that. I don't know if it was a scare tactic or what, but it worked. And I left there and I knew it was over, knew the party was over. So that's when I called my sister, called my wife and said, you know, this is full disclosure. We got to tell our board, we had an outside board of of our family business. And the first time we didn't, we tried to do it just ourselves. That didn't work. So it was like full disclosure next day. I get suspended from work. I got this big document in my in the mail. You're no longer an officer. You're suspended. You've got to do X, Y, and Z, or your ownership's at stake. And so I did. Got you know the, that
1: was coming, or was that a surprise? No,
0: I mean it was. I, I knew there was ramifications at some point, but I didn't know it'd be so swift. Um, and this is like from the attorney company attorney. And so like, so I get all this stuff. So I got this legal thing hanging over my head because I don't know what's going to happen with that with a federal fucking government. You mm-hmm. know company thing hanging over my head. So I've got no choice. I got no choice to get healthy. I got no more drugs, uh, access, but I wanted help. Like th- this is the point where I was up until that point, I was out of my mind. Like I was seeing things and just like, so that's when I was bear crawling around my house and stuff. So anyway, I went to therapy or went to rehab three days later.
1: And how long was rehab?
0: They have a 28 day program, but I went for 10. They have like a this particular place, the Leonard Center of Hope and Mason, has a ten day diagnostic period. That's when you meet with docs and stuff. And so that's all. That's all I went, and it was much to their chagrin because they wanted me to go somewhere for like a year, like eighteen months, and I just couldn't leave my family. And and I was lucky enough to have my aha moment within those ten days. So it was risky to, to leave.
1: Were you leaving? before they want to no to no with the, 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 well, the 10 yeah.
0: days you have the option like they'll you do 10 days and then they'll determine where else to send you in the country or keep you there mm. oh, and okay. so I just did the 10 and it was you know you the, the team's jaw dropped when I said I'm leaving because I was an acute case I mean I had anxiety massive depression massive acute drug use so I was I had all the signs of somebody that needed serious, help Re- and i left at, yeah. yes after 10 days and um yeah so that was a risky move but thus far 4 years 4 years yeah that's um
1: and what was that like after the 10 days i mean for those 10 days were you just gone and do your friends does the extended family know does your mom know
0: no well, no my mom knew my sister knew my wife knew I that heard was your it wife knew we were for 10 that was it i mean yeah the, the people that yeah. i told that was it and then my, my the two friends that were involved, I th- they might not even have known because I lied to them, but I was too ashamed to tell them.
1: Did you have uh, like – I don't want to say good and bad, but did you have like friends that were not involved in this lifestyle that kind of were removed and didn't understand where it is? And maybe another group of friends who if you told them, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I, c- I could see that. Like you yeah, know, breaking it to yeah. those friends may be different than kind of saying, I know I see you at all these group friend functions – you know, I, you know, you know. Did the, you have to start telling people as you well, saw a, them
0: a, afterwards? Yeah. After I, you got well, out. my my two buddies became that intervened with me became like my spokesman. So mm-hmm. all these friends would come up to them and say, "What's going on with Trevor? Like, is he okay?" I mean, they didn't hear about the rehab part, but the people, everybody started that I was around started seeing that I was in bad shape.
1: Well, you had the outburst. Yes. At the yeah country club, yeah. you're looking awful yeah you I lost, lost tons of weight i was yeah. pale
0: and yellow and yeah i mean it's like it started getting bad but uh, so they knew but as i got healthy i decided i made the decision instead of having 75 conversations with people like being out why aren't you drinking i just decided to tell everybody at one time and i did that but after rehab i went dark for about a year and a half I was doing therapy. I was doing groups. I didn't talk to anybody. Like I removed myself because I went into like a massive depression.
1: But living at home. Yes. With your family. Yep. But not working.
0: Not working. No, did not work. And um, but which was just uh, just an extraordinarily fortunate circumstance that we had the resources to to do that. But um, so I came out in 2017 to the community which was just five generations of Steinhausers and now I'm gonna be the first one to fuck it all up. So like I had this really hard time reconciling the fact, A, how am I ever gonna function without alcohol? Because cocaine was a byproduct. I would never have looked for cocaine had I not been drunk. And secondly, what's the community gonna think of me? Like this schmuck kid, who's always been known as a drug addict, like people all, parents and stuff throughout the years always knew that I was kind of a wild card, um, which turned out to be completely accurate. but I.
1: But you're living in the same community where you grew up. Absolutely. So I mean, yes. the, the reach of the people that know you.
0: Yes, and, and yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, there was this event that a friend signed me up for, which was like a storytelling thing, and I decided right then that I'm going to spend this this 12 minute little segment um, next to somebody that's talking about. Law and another person that's talking about being a librarian or people telling stories, I'm going to throw my addiction out there. So it's
1: just an open mic storytelling. Yeah. And it was
0: on Facebook live and all that kind of stuff. And I did it and I'm thinking, you know, it'll, however the shoe drops, the shoe drops on whatever the perception is of this thing. And I'm sure people had all different kinds and, but the perception that I got and the reception that I got was unbelievable. Like I didn't hear anything but positivity and because somebody told me once, and I think it's true, is no... People love a comeback story. Mm-hmm. Like people don't care how you got knocked down. It's how you dust yourself off. And I've always remembered that. And to this point, it's been okay. But that's how I chose to come out and just tell everybody. And rather than having these pockets of people and uh, whispers and all that stuff, I'd just rather just disclose the whole thing so everybody knows.
1: Right. How much of a relief was that after a it year was, and a half of dark? Was,
0: <laughs> it was huge. Yeah. Like all the way huge it really yeah. it really helped me out yeah. yeah
1: i remember finding out and thinking wow and i actually remember seeing you for the first time after for a long time and i felt like i was meeting you for the first time much more mellow calm like i felt like when you looked at me you looked at me like it was just a different it was just aaron
0: a, and i worked together yeah. By the way. <laughs> yeah
1: um yeah but i knew you socially you know a little bit too and um I never got invited to the crazy parties, but yeah. <laughs> a little bit. But, but that's I'd, the
0: thing. Like I never engaged in a conversation. Like I could never have done this five years ago. Because I'd be I wouldn't be like I'm enjoying this. Like right. I enjoy conversations yeah. now. You know what I mean? Like my entire life was we got somewhere else to be, certainly. Right. You know.
1: Yeah. Like, almost like you're you were taught you know, you you obviously were nice and genuine and like talking, but you could tell you were you were on to the next thing distracted. Before you finish the thing in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think meeting you after your rehabilitation, you know, the way you made it happen, it, you know, you were different. So um, what's, you know, this is kind of a newer version, I guess, or a different version of you and you're having to learn you again. And yeah. you probably have a new family dynamic, a different dynamic with
0: your kids. Yeah. I mean... And let me just go back to the work thing real quick. But like, you know, so I've had true, very traumatic events happen uh, in my life. Um, So like I started work 2001, working with my dad and my sister, which was great. Family business is unbelievable. Dad's my best friend, like tight as can be. He gets, you know, 2005, our 100th year in business. I'm getting married changing technologies at work and he gets diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. So like devastating time, like, you know, so that set me on, that was a huge catalyst for me to just check out. And your One, dad
1: was the man.
0: He was the man. Everybody <laughs> loved him and he single-handedly as the third generation and we kept our company going and just strictly off of relationships. Like and not he just, sick before then. No, just exercised and um, no brain tumor. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was just the, it was out of body experience when I found that out. Totally.
1: Have you had to grieve that loss all over again now that you're not using?
0: uh, Yeah, I grieve all the time. Um, But but,
1: was it delayed because of?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, but that, that, that allowed me to check out into, Like I just didn't give a shit, you know, like even family and marriage. I just like, this was my dude, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So yeah, just checked out. And then, and then that day, almost the day he died. So our older brother, um, almost to that day, disowned my sister and I, for whatever reason, um, he, he was adopted And he let people know that very clearly and kind of always had a chip on his shoulder, but he just, he wrote us off and like we we were, I don't know, it was a work thing. It got out of hand and it, that turned into, and this is a both sides thing of of stubbornness, but 12 years of not talking to each other. We did not talk to each other.
1: After your dad died. After our
0: dad died, yeah. And and it's not for trying. I mean, I told him I loved him all the time, and and it's just nothing nothing could get through. But 2015, right when I am, almost right after I went to rehab or right before it, he gets diagnosed with melanoma. And so he goes, gets cleaned up, they get it. He's good for a couple years. Still, I still have no access to him, even in the, sh- even in the, the face of certain death. So I'm grieving this. Like I got no, my dad's gone. I got no man in my life. My brother fucking hates me, you know, so it, like just, it, it was just awful. Um, but then I get healthy last year, which is one year ago. It was in September, um, probably in early August, he gets his Cancer comes back in his brain, in his spinal fluid. Like, you know, they give us six months. And I can't see my brother. Like, I still can't get in there, you know? And I forced my way into his life. And six months was actually five weeks. My sister and I were to be with him. For like two weeks. And it was just, it was great. And we got to say, I love you and shit, but it was fucking awful. So he died. And so the traumatic event of my dad, I lost it. But if I didn't have my recovery, I would have certainly like right after he died, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going to get so fucked up. I'm just going to drown all this. And But I had that recovery. Like I had these yeah. coping skills now that I didn't have before and I stayed sober. So... It was just a, a tale of two halves, I guess, if you want to call it. Like, I didn't have the skills when my dad died. I didn't have coping skills for anything. And now I went through this recovery and gave it everything I had. And, and my brother dies. And as bad as it was, I was able to like keep it together and say, you know, there's no point in going out and um, doing this. And that's not what he would want. Certainly not what my dad would want. So it's just a profound affirmation of what recovery can do for a human being and yeah so i just wanted to add those two things because they were pivotal points in my life and you know they both had two um different endings but you know one was a positive a positive thing because of you know dedicating my life to being sober
1: yeah so um you're not in your family business anymore which was a huge departure from your whole identity (laughs) yeah for i feel like a a preordained i don't know the right word but you no know, it was
0: a absolutely expected thing from the very start like was, which was a huge prep you know it was like a pressure cooker really to be you know
1: to finally walk away from that family business i mean your last name is on the front of the building you know you're walking away from that so now you've really dedicated yourself to recovery
0: yeah i got uh like intervention training, I got recovery coaching training. I'm not really doing much with those two because it's really hard to get people help because you know they just don't, <laughs> they just don't want it. So, but the thought of this podcast came to my mind early in my recovery, like because I always wanted to be on TV. I always wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Like that was my dream. I wanted to act, and I'd always been acting in different plays throughout my life. Which yeah. was, I mean, not honest, not not like actually, but like yeah. I've just been playing this freaking role of whoever I am today. Um, But this would give me a chance to get my personality out there and also do some good. And like the the stigma of drug use and mental health has always driven me. It drives me absolutely up a wall. So I wanted it to be about that. And Mm -hmm. that's where the name stigmatized came from. And I wanted it to be, a, f- a platform for people to to listen to other stor- stories of other people. Hopefully, somebody going through it can relate. A family member going, you know, having the loss of a child or having gone through it. Anybody can listen and have have people come on and tell stories of, you know, anguish and terrible times. But you know, always come out like how is it now? Mm -hmm. What did the experience teach you? Where did it take you? What did you learn about yourself? And and hopes of helping other people, period.
1: And I think you've exposed a side to people of saying, you know, you can have it all. You can have uh, everything you ever wanted. You can have the nice house, the car, the, (laughs) the family, even a business, a job waiting for you. And addiction was always there and it Yeah, I
0: mean, we were in the top of the hill, big house, (laughs) picket fence, that whole thing. And you got people that are in very, you know, much less fortunate circumstances. uh, And we collided it in the same spot. Mm -hmm. Like it just, when people say it doesn't discriminate, it does not. It is a mental behavioral disorder that people with trauma or not trauma or just brains that are defective, they, want to, they don't want to feel that way, mm-hmm. and that's – we choose, and I want to make this very clear, that I made the choice to pick up marijuana. I made the choice to drink alcohol and whatever else I did, but I did not want it to take over my life. Like, I didn't wake up every day and be like, oh. Huh? i like to spend $375 today and do as many drugs as possible to the point where I could almost <laughs> have organ failure. You know, like nobody wants, nobody wants to be at that point. Nobody wants to be living on the streets, shooting heroin. And so, it, yeah, at a point it was a choice, but it, it quickly becomes not a choice. Yeah.
1: I will say also on a personal note, I know you came to me about starting a podcast. Oh, we should start a podcast together yeah. before any of this. And having worked with you, I kind of was like, you know, I feel like I, I, I feel like I'm going to end up doing a lot of the work. Um, you know, like a lot of us, you know, you start projects. And I think I had experience, you know, pre-rehab Trevor. You had a lot of great ideas. And then, you yeah. know, you were gone. You know. Yeah. yeah. And so I said I I feel like I'm in enabling this situation. Like I don't want to do the front of the work and you kind of dropped it. And then I turn on social media one day and I almost started crying. You had a logo, you had a platform, you had interviews and I was like, he fucking did it. You followed through, you know, and it's awesome.
0: Yeah. For, for <laughs> once, you know, well, and I don't doubt you because yeah, the work, Trevor's work ethic is, it still struggles, but yeah, and I just didn't have it. so I don't doubt you for not engaging. but I just in that felt like
1: you needed to do this for you on your own. And you know, seeing you after it was off the ground, I just was like, this is awesome this is amazing, you know, um, and you should be really proud.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. it's I'm having the most fun I've ever had in my life. And it's to get emails and, you know, messages every once in a while that this is making a difference. You know, that's all the affirmation that I need that. um, But I love story like you. I love hearing stories of people and people that are willing to go to places that they don't normally go emotionally and to get real and raw and ugly and bloody and then and then see. You know, people that have been in the penitentiary and now they're like this beacon of hope and this recovery magnet that everybody calls like that is what it's all about, you know, and 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 again, everybody collides in the same way. You can have totally different experiences and they're and it's if you can't make light of the stupid shit that you did, (laughs) like, like, you know, I have professionals on. But when you have somebody in recovery and you we laugh together about some of the stuff. It's just because there's a relatable factor there. But ultimately, every show ends with like, hope and, you know, just hope for the future hope for everybody. Because if honestly, it's a cliche, but if, if I turn the corner, somebody that's had his ass powdered his entire life, given everything, no work ethic, brain has been destroyed by head injuries, and literally had no shot. And then ravaged by drugs, and if I, with no work ethic, and I can turn the corner and be successful, you know anybody can can do it. And it, but it's a grind. Every day is a grind. We talked about this earlier. Like every day is hard. I think about alcohol every single day, and I could piss it all away, (laughs) but I got I got too much going for me, and I honestly don't want that life anymore. But I'll I can never take my foot off the accelerator because there's a little guy on my shoulder saying, "Dude, one beer." is not going to kill you you know yeah. but i know for me that that would not work yeah so
1: well thanks for having me on <laughs> no i i would have not <laughs> interviewed
0: anybody else this was fun <laughs> no i enjoyed it and hopefully everybody can figure out or at least know now what's between my ears and and i can tell you that it's if you go you don't want to stay long because it's a scary <laughs> place to be <laughs> thanks for listening I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound. Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch. And photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.